staying resilient as a fundraiser during these challenging economic times. Hello again, everybody. This is Bill Stanjakevich, and this is the first day with the Fundraising School, our weekly podcast. And I'm joined today by a longtime member of the Fundraising School's faculty, Carlo Williams, who has a fascinating story to share with us in the arts community, which the arts suffer the most when there are economic downturns. And yet a successful fundraising effort that Carla has been a part of can help teach all of us important lessons about staying resilient during these challenging economic times. And Carla, thanks so much for being with us on this Fundraising School podcast. My pleasure. And how interesting that you use the word resilient because it's the word we picked um, for a special campaign for the Charlotte Ballet. Um, you know, when we first thought about it, everybody was doing a relief fund and it sounded like the worst word ever. And mm. we said, no, this is not about relief. That's, that's a down word. We want an up word. And so we picked the word resilience and we called it the resilience fund. Real simple. And so give us uh, the information about how this campaign played out. Was the campaign planned before the pandemic occurred? Well, that's a response afterwards. That's a great question. There was a campaign in the works, which I think, you know, provided the foundation and the background for quick decision making. But um, let me tell you how fast this happened. Um, it really had to come out of nowhere, even though there was some rethinking. Um, on March the 13th, the ballet had to cancel one hour before an opening night performance of Sleeping Beauty. Mm. which is really crushing and devastating when you think you've got a whole company and an audience sold out and there's nowhere to turn except to say, sorry, we're going to cancel. Um, that was March the 13th. And by March the 26th, we had a proposal in front of the board and its leadership to consider jumping in to attempt to deal with the financials. And when I say deal with the financials, I am talking about a high probability of a $1.7, $1.4 million loss. This would be loss of income from all streams. It turned out to be, when we vetted those numbers, to be closer to a million. So that's how we set our goal. We were gonna have losses, we were gonna have uh, a shutdown company, we were going to try to keep our staff everything possible to make it, to, to make the company resilient. This is a very financially strong company. But a loss of one point whatever could undo all those financial years of solid planning. So it was actually the idea of several board members and um, they said, we've got to do something. So that's how it started. So what strategies, sorry about that. What strategies and timelines did you put in place then to reach this goal? Well, what we did was we sort of reached into our toolbox of all the fundraising um, standards of practice and principles and techniques. And we used campaign methodology. Um, we used volunteer leadership strategy building. We used peer-to-peer -peer solicitation. We used personalization of the highest order. We used the gift range chart to say how much could we raise, how quickly could we do it. 
Um, we set a timeline um, of less than six months, but within six weeks, within six weeks, we raised $833,000. Now, we still have the rest to raise. <laughs> so we're gonna use those same techniques that we used to raise the first 833,000. But we're in a little bit of a pause right now. All of the gifts were made by individuals. The first gift was unsolicited. It was made by the almost self-appointed leader of the campaign. I say self-appointed because it was a group of people and they all led. First gift was $50,000. Next gift was 25,000. And from there, it just went like crazy. Um, each of the volunteers um, took their own list, created their own strategy with help, uh, created their own way of making phone calls. Some would say, well, you know, I just can't make a phone call cold. I'll, I'll send them an email first. Or, no, I, I can call them. I'm going to be talking to them anyway. So each one of the volunteers who led the campaign used their own personalized strategies. And, um, and then we went to the board, and we asked the board to do 100%. And then we went to the advisory committee, and we asked them to do 100%. And the key to this whole thing was that the gifts were intended to be over and above everyone's typical annual gift because we couldn't afford to raise a million dollars and gut the annual fund by another million. Although otherwise we just are trading dollars, right? Carla has described for us several of the principles and techniques that are used every day in fundraising that she and her colleagues uh, are now employing to uh, be resilient on behalf of the Charlotte Ballet uh, as they're close to achieving their $1 million campaign. Carla, the 14-step fundraising process that is taught in principles and techniques and that you teach for us, that very first step is the case for support. How did the ballet adjust its case to incorporate the pandemic? Did the pandemic become part of the case for support? You know, the pandemic became part of the case in as much as it was all about employees and dancers and artistry, right? When you close a ballet, what you do is you end up sending everybody home. Well, that means everybody might have to go on unemployment or they're going to get laid off permanently and never return. So that guts, literally guts the soul of an organization. So this is all about the human side of an organization, not the bricks and the mortar, right? I mean, this is about the people who work there, the 100 staff who are artists in every right. And so the campaign was about keeping them employed. It was about keeping them on medical benefits. It was about, if, if we had to lay them off, it would be a furlough and they would come back, their jobs would still be there, right? It was about covering the losses from Sleeping Beauty which were $300,000, $400,000. So the case itself was critically examined from a financial standpoint, from a human standpoint, from an artist standpoint. And we could measure the impact, positive and negative, of each aspect of what closing the ballet down would do, including the academy. Now, the academy is 1,000 young people who take lessons. 
So we had to look at that as well because the academy is actually almost in some ways a business proposition for the company because it, it actually breaks even and sometimes makes money. If we close all that down, what do all the kids do? And what happens to young ballet students when there is no dance? Um, six weeks out, two week, two months out, the body changes, right? So part of this case was trying to figure out how do we keep everybody doing what they do so well, keeping the artistry alive, keeping the ballet dancers dancing somehow, some way, and keep engaged with all the audiences. So we had to talk about digital formatting, to videos, to online classes. So the case became a way of keeping the organization and its human souls um, intact and alive, productive, and doing what they do best, which is being creative. And then we all benefit, right? Because we get their creativity. So the wardrobe department made masks. They couldn't be sewing costumes, right? So they made masks for the local hospital. So the dancers made videos and wrote notes to all the donors. So the case for support was this core human look at how do we keep all these folks who are so not paid terribly well anyway, employed and our donors absolutely resonated but boy let me tell you when they asked those hard financial questions we had to have a dollar amount plus and minus to every aspect of the company so we have performance when we teach in the principles and techniques course you one of the first things you bring to our students is the cube the nice learning device that dr rosso uh, created right. we can hold in our hands and look at right. for, for kinetic learners. And one of the panels talks about professional stance that we, we never ask with apology. We always ask with confidence. And one of the questions we've heard often at the fundraising school during the virus crisis is, is it okay for me to contact my donors? And is it okay for me oh. to ask my donors for a gift? I'd like to ask you about that professional stance. What mindset did you and your colleagues need to have? What does it say about your belief in the ballet that you confidently were able to go to them uh, at all, let alone have this tremendous fundraising success? Well, first of all, we made it a point right from the beginning, strategy involved going to those who love us the most. End of story. We were not gonna go to anyone who didn't love us the most because there are other organizations doing other things, right? That, that's important. We invited people um, to give. We use a donor-centric approach to our communications, our messaging that says, that said, first of all, how are you? First of all, what's going on in your life? And you know, we have to, we, we're sorry that we're not together at the ballet, or we're sorry we're not able to do these things but how are you? And from that then, we talked about the resilience fund and about the people component. Um, you know, it wasn't about as much as we had to cancel. It's, we've got to keep these people employed. Um, and, and so what it was about was to say, if you're able, would you consider joining us? We did not ever look at a donor and say, 
boy, you know, could you, would you do 50? No. And I have to say that almost all of the conversations, people who wanted to do something, was almost, it's, it's almost like they, they needed to do something. You know, they were stuck at home and they needed to do something and they needed to express themselves. I'd almost say that the majority of the gifts that were made were more or less unsolicited. Now, I know this is going to sound strange because we do, we do, want, we do want our volunteers to, to be brave and ask, just as, as we as fundraisers do that too. But in this particular case, we made a point of saying we're going to invite you to join us. Um, and therefore, we did not ask specific amounts. We told them what others were doing. We gave amount suggestions uh, because based on others, but we never asked somebody for a specific amount. It was their determination. And I think in this particular case, the donors ended up being even more generous than what we would have expected. And more quick, um, we elected not to do a contract. Talk about, talking about donor centricity. Oh, on, unlike a capital campaign where you really feel obliged to sign a contract by a donor or have a donor sign it because then, you know, it's a, a non-negotiable contract and, and you can book it. Uh, we didn't do that. We said, um, you know, this is, this is just your word and whatever you say, we're going to take it for that. And uh, honestly, Bill, I'm sure we're going to have some uncollectibles, but I doubt that we'll invoice anybody. This whole campaign really was a loving campaign. It was about people who loved the ballet, talking to, about people about what they loved and about how they were doing. And so I think our solicitation was probably in a way more kind, more gentle. Um, not at all, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. You know how that can happen. Um, I have a feeling that the tone of this will grow the culture of philanthropy even deeper in the organization um, because it's, it's the ballet, you know, it, it's the employees now, okay? It's the ballet students themselves who are thanking the donors. Boy, that gets down to, you know, where philanthropy becomes this wonderful reciprocity of we all care about this, so let's get together and do it together. So we'll be stronger together. It, and, it's, and it kind of isn't even about the money, right? It's about the mission. What a wonderful story and a wonderful example of fundraising success amidst this virus crisis. And as you can hear from Carlo's description, when you come to the fundraising school, you learn not just the techniques, but also these intangibles that are research-based and explains why our alumni meet or exceed their fundraising goals at rates higher than national averages. And the fundraising school is still open for business. Our courses that lead to the certificate in fundraising management and the certificate in fundraising leadership are available online uh, and you can receive a 50% discount through the crisis response scholarships, the crisis response scholarships for our uh, courses that are currently being offered online. Now, we hope to be back in person in Indianapolis at the end of August. Stay tuned for those details as of course, we're beholden to local, state, national, and of course, Indiana University policy regarding in-person meetings. 
We have these free weekly podcasts. We have monthly meetings uh, called Fridays with the Fundraising School, where you can get together and ask your questions and share your ideas, commiserate and vent if you so care to do that. Uh, and we also, this summer, we've developed something like a summer learning institute called the Series in Current Affairs Fundraising, five different half-day courses uh, that are moderately priced that lead to the Current Affairs Fundraising Certificate. All this information is available online. We call this TFRS at your desk. TFRS for the Fundraising School. TFRS at your desk. All online at philanthropy.iupui.edu forward slash the Fundraising School. With Carla Williams, this is Bill Stanjakevich, and now you are now more up to date on this first day from the Fundraising School. Thank you.